I can do. On my heart is jumping too. Oh, we go boom, boody boom, boody boom, boody boom, boody boom, boody boom, boody boom, boom boom. Boom boody boom, boody boom, boody boom. Goodness gracious, how audacious! Goodness gracious, how flirtatious! Goodness gracious, it is me. It is you. <laughs> I'm sorry, it is us. Ah. <laughs> And that is Goodness Gracious Me, sung by Sophia Loren and Peter Sellers. If you're wondering what the hell is going on with the viewpoint this evening, it is because we have a guest like no other. An orthodox is quite easily the best way to describe a man who is quite synonymous with the best and worst of this country. A man who rose to prominence in the days of apartheid, hated by the apartheid regime for being as honest as he had been with itself. And of course, that has not changed in the democratic dispensation. Good evening then, Mr. Peter Dirk Ace. <laughs> Good evening to you too. <laughs> what Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate your being here. I suppose there are so many things that come to mind when one says Peter Dirk Ace, but I think many South Africans have an opportunity now just to engage with a bit of sobriety because this is the kind of show where we can actually tease into the individual or the topic at times. Mr. Peter Dirk Ace, who is he? The Cape Tonian, who is he? The politician, who is he? The satirist, who is he? The playwright and the creative, who is he? Danny Evita Besaidenot. Ah, now you've put your finger on it. Where is Tani Evita Besaidna? You know, she's been terribly nervous because she was dancing in the Jerusalem with her grandchildren a few nights ago, and then there was an earthquake. And she's scared everybody will blame her. She's just one of my chorus line, my satirical cluster. Um, I think I've done about 120 characters in my work for the last 40-something years. Uh, some of them lasted only for one production, meaning three weeks, four weeks, six weeks. And Evita started in 19... 78, and I thought she would just be a column character in a column I wrote in the newspaper, and then she's still there with me after all these years. So uh, so who am I? Well, I'm somewhere between all that, and, and I just make sure that there's always a distance between me and her, because um, she doesn't like me at all. In fact, when people ask her about me, then she makes a noise and she says, oh, that third-rate comedian, and I think she's quite depressed that I've stopped doing her because she liked the idea of having me as an enemy. And that actually keeps me also more or less disciplined so that I don't use her as, as a joke. She's not a joke. It's very important that she has to be a three-dimensional person without a sense of mm -hmm. humor. And that's why she's lasted for all those years, because in South Africa, I think people understand that sort of person. Let's talk about Peter Dergais. We'll talk about Daniel Vita Besaidenot a little later then, please. Born in Cape Town, 1945, theatre is where essentially the you came out, writing many plays, directing many of them, and of course, being on the world's stages. Talk to us about the critical period, 60s, 70s, leading to the 80s, in terms of your artistic flair. You know, I was brought up with, with, with music. Music was the heartbeat of my life. My parents were both musicians, concert pianists. My mother, a, a brilliant pianist from Berlin. She was German. She was Jewish. She left Germany in 1938 and just in time came to Cape Town of all places. I, I mean, why Cape Town? I mean, what can be further away from Nazi Germany than South Africa? Little did I know that apartheid would be pretty close. Um, she met my father on the stage of the City Hall in Cape Town, playing a Mozart two-piano concerto, um, 
So that's why I have to thank two people for being here. I've got to thank Amadeus Mozart and, of course, Adolf Hitler, who sort of forced my mother out of her homeland. Anyway, so music was my life. Um, pianist, uh, pianist, uh, my, my, uh, chamber music, uh, violins. Um, I grew up with that. And so when you talk about artistic flair, I think I was blessed with parents who were great artists with great discipline, great love for what they were doing, worked very, very hard. My sister also started playing when she was nine, no, seven, seven years old. She was already playing with the piano. I I didn't do very well as a pianist. I was too lazy. I threw away all my theory books, and my my father got terribly cross, and there was a lot of shouting. Um, uh, But so I knew I'd do something one day. I didn't realize it would be totting around in a high-heeled pair of high-heeled shoes. But um, so that's where that discipline came from. Uh, And theater was never part of my dream. Uh, I just actually uh, never thought of what I wanted to do one day, but I just knew what I would do had to be original and difficult for other people to copy. So I hope I did that. Difficult for other people to copy is one thing. Difficult for other people to stomach, quite another. You had a regime that was very, very unimpressed with you at the time, given the fact that your satire went straight to the heart of the National Party. Was that because Mama had been one who had experienced what the African majority were experiencing at the time, given her German heritage and upbringing? Tell us that story in relation to how your father would have reacted to what was going on at the time and you being who you were. That's a fascinating thing. I've never thought about that, actually, making such a direct comparison. But I think you're right. My mother, I'll tell you something very bizarre. Uh, We only Mm. found out that she was Jewish after she was dead. We never talked about it. it. It just never existed in our recognition of family. My mother was Jewish. And only after she had died, I found out from her brother. Uh, when he told me, um, I wasn't surprised because I always had a feeling that there was something special with, with her. Um, and there was never any tolerance of racism in our household, purely because she would not take it. And she, both my parents led by example and never, ever called people names or made jokes about people because they were poor or because they had different color or different or handicap or any of that. Um, although yeah. there was a great sense of laughter in the house, wonderful, wonderful sense of humor, uh, but mainly telling jokes about things that were true. Maybe that's what I've inherited. I'm very bad at joke telling, um, but I know that the truth is sometimes funnier than the joke. Uh, and my father also, being an Afrikaner from Itparo, um, mm. his cousin was Dr. D.F. Milan, the first apartheid prime minister. So now that sort of clouds my horizon hugely. That's an ernstig one. Ernstig, and of course, in Kerk, my father, organist in the Dutch Reformed Church, I was brought up very strictly in the NG Kerk Calvinist uh, dogma. Um, my mother would come with us once in a while to the NG Kerk, of course, wearing a hat. She always got the giggles with a hat, and sometimes we got the giggles in church with my mother, and we were disgraced the family and had to leave. She was a terrible giggler. Um, but we, my father took it very seriously, and uh, we, we, we sang with, with our little children's choir in, in Hikar to Dr. Favurt and his wife. Um, so that's where I come from. So my roots were very much there, and I never thought of making fun of them. Listen, I was brought up to believe that 
you don't make fun of the Germany or the policeman or the politician or, or there was this complete respect uh, of the uh, ruling class. And maybe when I started making, how will I call it, making plays about the apartheid government, which happened only when I got back from university. I went from there to, to London for four years to the London Film School. And, of course, that's where my whole life changed, where I realized that my instinct was right in South Africa about being deeply uncomfortable as a white South African with privilege, realizing that it was against all the standards of life of, of apartheid policy. And then I came to the Space Theater. Space Theater 1972, and that's where the work started, where you realize that it was illegal to do what we were doing. We were mixing the races. We were allowing black and brown and white people to sit together. 1972, the police would raid us. And so that's where my, that's where my, my passion and, of course, my, my criminality started, because mm. I, was, uh, I was against the status quo. I was making fun of these people who were terribly important. I was gay, good God, on top of everything. I had friends who were not white and uh, did things in the dark with my friends, which was also illegal. So um, also born a criminal to a certain extent, like, like, Trevor, like Trevor Noah. Um, but so the background is very much, I was, you know, I'll give you another example of the, the answer to that sure. question. I was once on a TV show in, in Germany when I was on tour, and of course, with their deep German, they said, yeah, and, and how is you, of course, you know, anti-apartheid, and you fight the apartheid system, and you're an Afrikaner, and how do you fit in to this whole white thing? How do you fit in? And I just suddenly said, well, my father's cousin was the first apartheid prime minister, so call me Eva Braun's cousin. Now, everybody understood that in Germany, because Eva Braun was Adolf Hitler's wife. So, I mean, I was very aware now that I was very close to the upper echelon of power, and maybe that's, where, that's what inspired me to start making fun of them. The donors of us, any tannies, any domini, any policemen, and maybe my power. I, just, I think I was very childish in the beginning, just to irritate them, and I hope I did. <laughs> Although my power and I became did. friends eventually. I mean, he threw me out of the house out of fear, um, and there was a lot of fear. Uh, and because he knew what the punishment could be, and I was, thank heavens, too, I think, too busy doing my job to think about the, the alternatives. I mean, I never thought of, don't do it because it's dangerous. And that's what I say mm. to young, to young people who say to me today, you know, I want to be a satirist. I said, are you prepared to lose your life? And they said, why? I said, because that's what you must be prepared to do: lose your life to say what you have to say. And if you can't do that, then don't say it. A story of courage, a story of migration, a cousin to Hendrik Verwood. He came out as gay at the time for a young Afrikaans boy. It was a complete and total abomination, made worse by the fact that he was making a mockery of all things apartheid, not just in the country, but abroad. He had friends across the racial lines, which certainly would have been against the Immorality Act, among many other instruments of apartheid. 
Yet he stands proud and tall, not because he is a remnant of apartheid, but because he was one of many who helped defeat the racist, illegitimate minority regime. His name is Peter Dirk Ace. After the break, we continue having the conversation with him with the hope that he is going to call her. The her, of course, is Tania Vita Besedonot, who I understand celebrates her 85th birthday yesterday. And by the way, because it was her birthday yesterday, I understand you share a happy birthday with her. So happy birthday, Uncle Peter Dirk Ace. After the break, the callers will be on the line to ask you one or two questions. But please bring along so we can have a conversation with her. I do understand as an 85-year-old, she is in her pyjamas and pantoffles. Hopefully she will oblige us after this. SAFM, leading the conversation. SMS SAFM now on 41391. Call or now. 0891-104-207. Our guest this evening is no stranger to South African theatre, entertainment and, of course, politics. Talking to Mr. Peter Dergais. And any minute now, we might be graced on the airwaves by the short presence of Tania Vita Besedenot. Of course, in 2009, Peter Dergais directed Mac Becky, his first new play since 2003 at the Market Theatre in Johannesburg. His next play, The Merry Wives of Zuma, premiered in 2012, and his most recent play in 2015, African Times. Talk to us, and please, Uncle, about these very dear... In fact, before you tell me about that, let me go straight to the callers because I don't want to lose them. Good evening, Colin. Thank you for calling us. Colin is also in Cape Town, Peter. Colin, good evening. And good evening to um, um, Peter Dugais. The question Indeed, I is, 40 years ago, he was never actually known. The only time he, he was actually known was um, yeah, in the 70s, 74, 75, 76, as a Vita Now, I would like to ask him, he grew up in a very privilege Afrikaner uh, environment. But only here when he started, uh, I remember he used to impersonate uh, Dr. Boita, Dr. This, Dr. The Crocodile and all that stuff. Then he became famous. So my question is this, in the very, very beginning, when he was a young boy, I heard him talk about how he grew up. And did he only become famous yeah, in the, the late 90s or 2000 as Vita Besaitnot? Or was he a famous person in the 70s, 80s? Thank you. Thank you very much. We've got that, Colin. Much appreciated. Do you want to respond to that, uh, Peter? Well, you know, fame is so unimportant. I was famous from the age of three years old because my cat loved me, and I was famous to my cat. Fame is not important, but, you know, starting to work as a professional with a discipline, and, and especially in the theater, especially in the entertainment area, fame means 
people have listened and watched and enjoyed what you do. And that's where it started, where an audience came. And Anivita started in 1978 and then in 1981 and then in 1983 she became the ambassador in the homeland. And so eventually one thing led to another. So it takes time. Nothing happens overnight. I think only very seldom, even today, you appear on television and then suddenly you become a superstar overnight. So it happens to not every single person. And it, it's a very, very tough life. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You've got to work and work and work at your craft. And the fame is like aftershave lotion. Then you can put it on and smell nice. But you first got to grow a beard before you can have the aftershave lotion. Well, that was Peter's question. If anybody else wants to participate in this conversation, you're more than welcome to do so on 0891-104-207. Peter Durkay's comma stroke Tani Avita Besedenot. Is Tani Avita Besedenot available there, Peter? Because I do want to ask her a couple of questions. But, if but she's... Yeah, hello, yeah. Still, uh, uh, Songiza, is that you? <laughs> it I'm is, here. Mama. How are you? I'm fine. I heard you just now say because I'm 85, I'm in my pajamas. My Scott, I'm a member of the ANC. I'm awake till three in the morning. African time doesn't go to bed at half past seven at night. So I'm, yeah, most uh, members of the ANC you should like be awake know. at three in the morning. Well, happy birthday. I understand it was your birthday yesterday. So happy belated birthday. Born in Bethlehem on the 28th of September, 1935. That's quite an age ago. How are you coping with the times? How are you? I mean, you're a proud ANC member, it appears. What keeps you awake at three o'clock? I know what keeps most of the ANC members presumably awake at three o'clock. Have you the same reason to be awake at that time? Well, sometimes they send me from the police station because they were driving drunk in their cars. And so I've got to bail them out and say you can't arrest them because they're members of the party. Otherwise, the whole ANC would end up in jail. You know, I've got three grandchildren, which, uh, which is a very important energy in my life. And they are my black grandchildren, I might tell you. Uh, although they don't, you know, they, they're not black, they're not white, they are Barack Obama beige. And they have said to me, Gogo, what are you going to do to protect democracy? So that one day when we need to vote freely and fairly, democracy will be in full working condition. And so that's why I've joined the ANC. I'm in the Tuli house, I'm in the kitchen, I cook for reconciliation, because I realize that when people sit together at a table and eat good food, they don't fight, they talk. And that's more than anything important in the African National Congress, that all these factions get together and just talk things out and realize that they've got a job to do for the people of South Africa and not just for themselves. So it's a full-time job. Do they ever actually implement the outcomes of those conversations? Because many people might disagree that what you're trying to do there in Lutuli House is actually manifesting in the community outside. My dear, I think far, far too many people are treating the parliamentary, the, the political parties like a royal family. They are people who work for people. In other words, they work for us. And I keep on saying to all the cadres and comrades in the African National Congress, Livadi, you have not been voted in by the people. You've been put here by the party. And sometimes I think if a democratic government loses its sense of humor, it becomes a gang. So my hands are full of, 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 of sorting out all the arguments and, and the realities that We've got, uh, listen, we are in the middle of a pandemic which takes all our time and our energy. But hopefully one day, hopefully not too far in the future, we'll be back in a country without a pandemic. And then we've got to sort out the mess that we were in before the pandemic. 
state capture and, and all the dishonesty. And I really think that it's time that somebody got the tenders for the orange jumpsuits and we've got to put some people behind bars. Mm, obsolete. But I will see that they get good food. That's a promise. <laughs> in 2009, Peter Durkheis directed Macbecky, his first new play since 2003 at the time at the Market Theatre Johannesburg. His next play, The Merry Wives of Zuma, somebody, sh Peter, somebody that Tanya Vita Besedenot would know very well because I understand she's a strong member and a member in good standing in the ANC. The Merry Wives of Zuma premiered 2012, most recent play, 2015, African Times. So tell us about your relationship with Peter Durkheis and these plays that he's writing. And also for those who want to participate, I'm talking to the listeners now. You haven't got much time. 0891-104-207. Peter Durkheis and... Tani Evita Besaidenhout are both my guests. They haven't got much time with us because Peter Durkheis has to have an interview in about three or so minutes with a guest of his. So please make it snappy. Voice note rules are very quick. Under a minute, no noise in the background. Tani Evita, talk to us about your theatre or that of Peter. I'm not so sure well, who I'm, I'm talking to. No, listen, Evita's guest, she's left. She, she doesn't talk about my plays because she doesn't go to see them. She doesn't particularly show much interest in what I do. But it's interesting that you mentioned those three plays. Mac Becky, which was, uh, which was, we put it on a stage at the Market Theatre. That was just after Paul Aquino. That was after the rise of Jacob Zuma and, and Julius Malema. And it was inspired by Shakespeare's Macbeth, and it was a wonderful experience to do a play which reflected so much of the politics of the moment. And then I did The Merry Wives of Zuma for obvious reasons, because there were quite a few wives, and we did an experimental production at the Witz Theater, uh, but nobody touched it. I, it went around the country to various drama departments. Nobody did the play because people just said, we can't make fun of Jacob Zuma which is a hell of a shame, because he was a funny man, as we all know. And then, of course, African Times, also a very interesting play, which I think might be um, in Johannesburg next year, uh, when the theatres come back to a relatively normal situation again. They're very important for me. My plays are not, not about Evita. Evita has a whole different area in which she, in which she, she uh, reigns supreme. But uh, the plays are part of the storytelling, and the storytelling is a very much an inspiration part of my life. South Africans, South Africans, you haven't got much time. I do urge you to speak. Final question then before I end this particular segment. Any hope for a retirement? And if that is going to happen, are we going to have a farewell for Mr. Peter Dirk Ace, who goes gently into his retired life? 75 is quite some time. It's a proper knock in cricketing terms, isn't it? Listen, I can't even spell the word retirement. Why must people retire? I think you only retire when you work for people you can't stand. And then you get your, your little gold watch and off you go with your pension. I have this, listen, the most of the most interesting politicians in our history have reached very, very ripe ages with bright brains and got on with the job. And the, and the ones that weren't very clever were still great inspiration for me and great material. So no, 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 retirement is not something I think of. The most important thing is I have an audience, and when the audience says to me, no, it's boring, stop, then I'll do something else. But uh, at the moment, lots of energy. And again, in the, in the darkness that we live at the moment, I think optimism is very, very important. And I just keep on reminding myself and all my people who listen to me is that the sun will rise tomorrow. And that is a great thing to look forward to.
Beautiful stuff. The sun will rise tomorrow. Final question then. And I don't know if you actually do speak on behalf of Tania Vita, but I can hear some mumbling in the background. She might still be there. Might she tell us about her new book that she has written in recognition of her 85th birthday? Tania Vita, I believe. Hello? Yes, Tani, you've written a book to celebrate your 85th birthday. Tell us about that, please. Final question. To celebrate my, my birthday? Well, I was promised, uh, President Ramaphosa promised me for my birthday he would take me trout fishing again, as we did 26 years ago. And you can see our wonderful film, Catching Trout, it's on YouTube, where I interviewed Cyril Ramaphosa in 1994. And he said for my 84th, 85th birthday, he'd take me trout fishing, so he owes me that. I, I think he's got more important things to do at the moment than to catch fish with me. I think the first thing we've got to find out is a vaccine against the COVID-19. But up to then, you know, I just wish everybody well. Liebe Ma'ardemese, it is important for us to just take a deep breath, look in the mirror, and the first thing you say when you see yourself is, you say, hello, Scotty, and then you feel better. Right, okay, Scotty. Well, I'm going to let you go off now and have yourself a gentle good night. I'm going to allow Peter Dokes as well just to show you your bedroom in his house there. We're going to take a short ad break, and by the time we are done with that, Peter Dokes will be back and available then to have a conversation with Miss Lynn Maria, Director of Film and Theatre. For now, good night, Auntie. Mr. Dokes will chat on the other side of the short break.